Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome Middle Earth Wanderers. Today we are exploring Middle Earth with a guest, Becca Tarnas. Becca is a multifaceted scholar, artist, and counseling astrologer who is deeply immersed in the enchanting realms of J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth. She holds a PhD in philosophy and religion, for which she crafted her dissertation, The Back of Beyond, the Red Books of C.G. Jung and J.R.R. Tolkien which unearthed the profound connections between Jungian psychology and Tolkien's imaginative world. Becca has manifested her scholarly passion in her book, Journey to the Imaginal Realm, a reader's guide to J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, offering readers a guided tour through the profound landscapes of Tolkien's epic tale. Becca, thank you for wandering Middle-earth with us today. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. There's nowhere I would rather be wandering. So what was your first experience with the Lord of the Rings? Can you recall a specific moment or scene that resonated with you and sparked your interest in Tolkien's world? Well, I actually have to go back even before the Lord of the Rings because when I was nine years old, I was in fourth grade and my Waldorf class teacher read The Hobbit out loud to us at lunchtime. And this was an absolutely transformative experience for me because I felt as I as if I knew this place already. I knew the landscapes, the names felt familiar. They it was as though they were ringing notes in my soul that I already knew. So Rivendell, Dale, uh the the lonely mountain. These were places that felt so familiar. Mirkwood, the encounter with the elves in Mirkwood and that enchanted scene in The Hobbit. So I was completely gripped by this and I came home and I told my mother and she said, well, wait until you read The Lord of the Rings. And I read it just a few years later. I was 13 years old and I was very lucky because I happened to read this in the year before the first of Peter Jackson's films came out. So I got that experience of reading the book for myself and seeing the images so vividly. And then the entire culture was caught up in those stories because the films were coming out over the next three years. And I was just absolutely captivated. I felt as though I had been taken away from this place, Middle Earth, that I really belonged and was somehow trying to find my way back there. And that was a feeling that really hasn't left. It's just transformed and become more scholarly and connected to things like philosophy of imagination. But the feeling has never gone away that that's a place I know. And that's a place that I have some deep connection to, as I know so many people feel in relation to Middle Earth. Yeah, so many people do, and we're we're going to dig into that in just in just a minute. But what do you think it is about Tolkien? Is it his writing style? Is it his characters that makes it feel like it's so familiar to so many people that it feels like that's that's where our home is is in Middle Earth? I think it's a number of different qualities. Certainly, it's his style of writing. Tolkien is a master of language. He understands language better than honestly, anyone I can point to. C.S. Lewis, his close friend who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and other stories, once said of Tolkien, he had been inside language. So for Tolkien, language and myth are intimately connected. And if you create a language, as he did, he invented 14 languages, Mm -hmm. that will inherently have a story within it. The language itself breeds a mythology, as he said, but also Myth is intimately bound to the language that speaks it. And I would add, it's bound to the land that it emerges from as well. And so that triumvirate of language, land, and myth, I think is part of what evokes that sense of a real place 
when we read when we read Tolkien. And then the other element has to do with what little we know from Tolkien's letters and other uh, evidence he left behind of his process of story writing, his process of creation. And it seems that there is some evidence he was experiencing what became the stories through his imagination that as he described it, he wasn't inventing, he wasn't making it up, but that it was already there, that he was discovering it. And I think that also lends it that sense of reality that he felt he discovered this world, that he discovered the tales within it. And as he was writing it, as he said, so too the links grew, meaning uh, the connections between those initial primary images grew in the writing. Of course, he wrote draft after draft. He was extraordinary at rewriting and yes. shaping and honing and all of that. But there's these core primary images that were there from the beginning. If you look back at his old notes and his letters, there were certain parts of Middle Earth that have always been there. And I think that too points to something deeper beyond Tolkien as an individual, certainly that has roots in a shared cultural mythological history, but even perhaps something along the lines of what Carl Gustav Jung called the collective unconscious. And if we all share that archetypal substratum in some way within us, then of course it feels familiar if a great storyteller can tap into that and bring it forward in the way that Tolkien did. Yeah, I love that. I love how you sort of explained, you know, the language, the archetypes that he pulled from, especially from, you know, the Jungian psychology. And we could even go further and look at the hero's journey as well. There's a lot there that Tolkien just felt like he was a master in. And in your own book, um, you, you, you share this term imaginal, right, which is sort of a fascinating concept. I'd never heard the word imaginal uh, uh, before. Um, but could you dive a little bit deeper into how the imaginal realm functions within Tolkien's wider legendarium? Absolutely. So this is a term that has been used by the scholar Henri Corbin. And Corbin is a particularly a scholar of Sufi mysticism, also philosophy. He was connected to Carl Jung and the Aranos Circle in Switzerland. And he wanted to bring forward a term that could speak to the products of the imagination and differentiate it from what we in our modern languages refer to as something that's just made up. So he differentiates between the imaginal and the imaginary. Very similar words. They both have mm -hmm. image at the root. But we often recognize what we mean when we say something is just imaginary. You just made it up. It's kind of uh, cognitively formed. Maybe it's put together by pieces of something else we already know. Uh, and different philosophers of imagination have come up with a variety of terms for what we're referring to there. Imaginary, Coleridge called it fancy. But Corbin wanted to differentiate that from this capacity we have when we go inward, when we allow ourselves to enter into a state where images just spontaneously arise, and we can focus on that. Jung called that practice active imagination, but it has a long history going back to Neoplatonism, Gnosticism, really all the mystical traditions have this capacity to focus inward, somewhat like meditation, but on images. So rather than emptying of thought or emptying of image, you focus on the image and then see what naturally arises, not making it up, but just something that spontaneously emerges. And if you try this, I promise you it actually works. That if you look inward and focus on an image, it will begin to unfold. A drama will play out. We see that in daydream or reverie. But there's a way in which we can concentrate on it and see what unfolds there. Um, and 
Corbin wanted that term imaginal because there's something true about that kind of imagination that comes forth through us that we know we're not just cognitively making up. And that's a very important differentiation. Notice how in modern language, we often speak about products of the imagination in a way that's very dismissive. We say it was just a yes. fantasy. It was mm -hmm. only a dream. Uh, it was merely your imagination. It's not those words dream or fantasy or imagination that have the sense of unreality. It's those other words, just, only, nearly, that dismiss it and say it's not real. And so thinkers like Corbin were wanting to demonstrate that there was something true about the imagination. The romantics were very invested in this, that the imagination had its own power of perception. And that's what imaginal means. And when we read Tolkien's descriptions of his own creative process, he is describing something much more like what Corban called the imaginal than what we say more dismissively when we say, well, it, it's just made up or um, it was just imaginary. And that's an important differentiation. And I think also why certain works of art speak to us in a very deep way because we know that they come from a true place that isn't physical isn't literal but it's also not just coming from within us it's coming from beyond us it's coming through us we become creative vessels and we know works of art like that when there's this sense of the numinous there's this sense that it wasn't just an individual human being that made this they were merely the instrument through which mm -hmm. something else worked. And I think Tolkien worked that way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love how you've articulated that as these, these great works of art that, um, you know, illuminate and almost transcend just the, the typical human experience. And that's something that I've, I've somewhat struggled to articulate to people. You know, it's like, well, well why J.R.R. Tolkien and why, why this? I mean, he just wrote some stuff down. He just wrote a book. Like, how can there be academics and people studying this? And, and why do we keep returning back to these themes and these tales? And, uh, and, you know, I've come up with a couple of answers, but I've kind of really struggled to articulate, like, why is it that these works of art that some might deride as just made up, but others feel like they have found something there, found some truths of the human experience? How would you articulate that a little bit further? I don't know if there's a question in there somewhere, but mm -hmm. I think you can see where my mind's going. Absolutely. Well, I think some of it, oh, we could answer this from so many different angles, which is why scholars do like taking up the task of Tolkien, because whether you're interested in language or in myth or in uh, botany <laughs> or um in the burgeoning genre of fantasy story and all the ways that uh, Tolkien's work has gone on to influence and inspire great fantasy works after him. It, you can take any of these different angles, but uh, I think the reason that scholars are so drawn to exploring this is because Tolkien is infinitely rich. And one of the reasons I would draw forward, which makes him so compelling, is that Tolkien had a spiritual vision that he embedded within his stories. And he was very wise in how he approached this because Tolkien was a devout Catholic, but his Catholicism was a Catholicism that was intimately connected to his relationship with his mother and the loss of both parents at a young age. Notice how many of the significant characters in his stories are orphans. Frodo, Aragorn, countless others I could name from the Silmarillion. Mm -hmm. And there's a resonance there with Tolkien's own experience. His father died just before he turned four years old. He has no memory of him. And his mother died not long after she converted to Catholicism against the wishes of her family, uh, all of whom were Anglican. And so she, as a widowed mother of two boys, was raising her children and lost the financial and emotional support of her entire family because of her conviction um, 
of the, the Catholic faith. And so, of course, young Tolkien would be deeply influenced by this. And when she died from diabetes when he was 12 years old, I think that cathection to his mother and that sense of her being a martyr to her faith, as he described it, gave him a sense that the mother church held that spiritual and emotional familial role in his own life. And because of that very deep, almost primal spiritual relationship to Catholicism, uh, that spiritual vision informs his storytelling. But he isn't a strictly dogmatic Catholic because he's also someone mm -hmm. who deeply loves in a passionate way the great uh, pagan myths of the Northern imagination. Uh, and he was really influenced by the Norse, Icelandic, Germanic uh, mythologies. And he manages to hold these two in a very creative tension that go on to inform his storytelling, where he could infuse that sense of divinity, the sacred, um, Christian moral values within his storytelling without making any reference to Christianity and especially no reference to religion. He said that was absolutely essential. There could be no reference to religion. And if you read his stories very carefully, there are no religious institutions, there are no religious practices. It's deep down within the story, these spiritual values. But it's also infused with uh, an older sense of spirituality that's connected to um, the polytheistic, pagan, earth-based religions of Northern Europe. And those blend very beautifully through his work, I think consciously and unconsciously and gives a spiritual vision that many people from a great diversity of backgrounds can connect to because it isn't dogmatic, but there's some part of us that knows there's a sanctity here. There's a, a sacred quality that he's managed to embed within these tales that for a lot of people give the Lord of the Rings in particular the sense of being a sacred text. I know almost no other work where someone will read it again year after year or read it aloud with loved ones throughout their lives at significant moments. I mean, there's certainly a few works we could point to along those lines, but The Lord of the Rings holds a fairly unique place in that kind of uh, return to it in the way that we would a sacred text. And I think it's because it does impart those spiritual values and sense of of sanctity mm -hmm. um, that cannot be directly tied to any one religion or spiritual practice or tradition of the primary world. And therefore it has its own life. And therefore um, we can relate to it anew. We can relate to it in a fresh way that can often feel relieving, especially for those on the one hand who might've been raised within a dogmatic religious tradition and they want to break away from that and yet they know there's some spiritual truth there and likewise for those who might have been raised in an atheistic or agnostic uh, upbringing where there's a longing for that sense of connection to the divine but they can't access it through channels that um, already exist in the world because of you know many of the challenges that surround um, religion and conflicts between religion and all of that um, historical legacy. Yeah. Yeah. That's really beautiful. How you, how you say that, how the, the spiritual or the religious aspect of the work is not necessarily a function of the primary world or the world that we live in, but it, it's something more deeper, more deeper, but it's something deep within the human um, psyche or spirit, whatever is inside of us. That's not just flesh and bone. Uh, but wants to connect with something bigger and, and something that we might articulate as divine. We're not done yet. If you like this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already. We'll be right back. You can be the hero of your own Marvel Comics adventure. Marvel Strike Force is an extraordinary mobile game 
a haven for comic book enthusiasts and gamers alike. Lead your own fellowship of heroes and villains to battle against the forces of darkness that threaten the very fabric of the universe. From the menacing Doctor Doom to the formidable Apocalypse, every battle is a chance to prove your mettle. And right now, Marvel Strike Force is commemorating its six-year anniversary. That means free rewards await those who heed the call and sign up today. With weekly events and bonuses, this anniversary celebration promises a treasure trove of special rewards. Rally your allies, sharpen your blades, and dive into the action of Marvel Strike Force today. Use code MAXPOOL to unlock free new treasures. That's code MAXPOOL, all one word, on the mobile game Marvel Strike Force. Now, back to wandering. Let's dig a little bit into some of the more archetypical sort of symbols that we see throughout the Lord of the Rings. For example, in your book, Journey to the Imaginal Realm, the idea of a threshold comes up quite a bit often, right? A threshold or a doorway or a gateway, some space in between worlds that gets crossed. Um, Art, do you see certain scenes or characters in the Lord of the Rings that are, whether through their journey or through their, their character motivations, they sort of represent that that threshold or that liminal space in between worlds? Hmm. Well, first to just bring forward some of those thresholds that are crossed in landscapes, probably the first one that we can see, and this is drawing directly on the book. So for those who've only seen the films, um, this would be a moment that isn't as clearly marked, but it's when the hobbits leave the Shire and they cross that threshold into the old forest. And suddenly they've moved from a world that's uh, civilized and looks a little bit like a late 19th century English hamlet to this vast mythological world that's infused with a sense of ancient power. That's the first threshold, leaving the Shire. But then there are so many others, whether that is um, the entering the, the doorway into Moria and how much changes then, uh, whether it is uh, Aragorn crossing the threshold into the paths of the dead, which is where his kingly initiation takes place, whether it's Frodo and Sam crossing the threshold into the midnight tunnel of Shelob's lair where they encounter the giant spider. That's their initiation. And especially it's Sam's initiation into uh, his own individual heroism as he's able to, to take on the probably the greatest embodiment of fear that anyone uh, directly encounters um, and many others. But those are significant moments that mark the, the text or the story. But in terms of figures being uh, certain characters or figures being liminal figures, um, oh, another threshold is when they cross this is probably one of my favorite ones, when they cross blindfolded into mm. Lothlorien. Mm -hmm. Because that echoes so many traditional fairy stories where we enter into the realm of fairy, into this imaginal realm without our senses, other than, uh, particularly without sight. So when our hearing... Um, when our sight is blocked, our hearing becomes peaked. Our sense of smell opens up in a new way. Um, touch, taste, all the other senses are awakened when we cannot see. And of course, we have that phrase, seeing is believing. That mm -hmm. part has to be taken away to cross that kind of threshold. And so it's, it's beautifully expressed in uh, the crossing into Lothlorien. You, know, you see that, for example, in the Chronicles of Narnia. Lucy goes into the the wardrobe, and she can't see, that, but she knows that the coats and the darkness suddenly change into the prickly pine needles, and she feels the cold of the snow. Or mm -hmm. in Harry Potter, he has to close his eyes before he goes through the threshold on platform nine and three quarters. That's right. Mm -hmm. You will find that over and over again, that even if it's involuntary, the eyes close, and then you find yourself on in another realm, in another world. Um, now, in terms of characters who might represent that, um, we have some of the more mystical figures. Uh, 
such as Gandalf in some ways is a figure who uh, has, who lives in multiple worlds at once. And we see that most clearly in his death rebirth experience when he dies to being Gandalf the Grey and he returns to the Western realm, the, uh, the uh, blessed realm in the West, Valinor, to be sent back as Gandalf the White. And so he is a being between realms. He is a being who in some ways represents that, um, that threshold of being between places and therefore can act more as a, a wisdom guide uh, for others because he's able to simultaneously hold what's happening here in this world, in this realm, but also the much larger spiritual context. Um, likewise, in various ways, the, the figures who bear the rings are between worlds, whether, whether that's the elves who do so in a much more wholesome way oriented toward goodness, um, that they are preserving the realm of um, the eternal blessed realm in Rivendell and Lothlorien, kind of holding back the ravages of time. Mm. Um, but in terms of liminality, you probably see that the most in terms of what happens to Frodo on his journey with the ring. And the longer he has the ring in the pos his possession, the more he does live between worlds, the wraith world where the nine ring wraiths are living all the time. And he's able, when he puts the ring on, he's able to see them in that realm. Um, but he becomes more and more liminal as he continues to bear the ring. And it reminds me of in the book, there's a part when uh, Frodo is still asleep in Rivendell and Gandalf is looking at him. Or maybe he's just woken up, I can't remember. Um, and Gandalf thinks to himself, he's, he may become like uh, a glass filled with light for all to see, mm. um, which is a great image because it's very much like the file of Galadriel that he's later given. Um, and another image from the books that's worth bringing forward here is when Frodo puts on, he doesn't even put on the ring. He's, he's been wounded by um, the ring wraith on Weathertop and he's just crossed the Bruinen on the way to Rivendell. And he looks across the river and because he is becoming a wraith himself because of that wound in his shoulder from the Morgul knife, on the one hand, he can see the nine riders more in their real form. But he also sees the elf Glorfindel, who's mm -hmm. the elvish companion on that journey in the film that's beautifully carried by Arwen, which is probably my favorite difference between the book and the <laughs> film, especially mm -hmm. because there's all these... Um, of echoes of Luthien and Beren from the, uh, yep. the Silmarillion. Yep. But he looks over and not only can he see the ring wraiths in that form, um, but he sees Glorfindel as a being of light. And it's because Glorfindel, as an elf who has lived in the blessed realm and has seen that pure light, is also a being between realms. He's one who, yes, bodily he's in Middle Earth, but some part of him always dwells eternally in Valinor, in Amman, the, the blessed realm, realm in the West. So, um, yeah, there's there's different examples of it, but those are a few I would bring forward. And I think both there's examples of figures who are both um, oriented toward goodness and oriented toward evil, and mm -hmm. and some probably most complexly like Frodo is holding the tension of both. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I love that you say that, and and let's let's look at one of those characters who's more leaning towards the evil side of things, um, and let's call it back to a couple of things that you've said earlier. Earlier, you said when it comes when you cross these, you cross the thresholds, the the your sight is taken away, right? Like the blindfolding mm -hmm. into Lothlorien. But even further back in our conversation, we mentioned the imaginal world, right? And as you look deeper inside of yourself, you can see these images and these dramas unfold, and that is what is imaginal versus imaginary. In The Lord of the Rings, in Middle-earth, there is a particular character who has an eye that does not look inward, but is mm -hmm. always looking outward. Um, Sauron the Deceiver. 
I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Sauron and this idea of him being manifested in the in the the emblem, the image of an eye that is always watching, always dominating, um, and how that has related to some of the things that we've talked about, right? The the imaginal realm that's looking inside, these thresholds where your your sight is taken away and yet you, you get to come into this land that is some something beyond where you were before. And yet Sauron does not does not fit those molds entirely. So talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. The eye of Sauron is such an interesting, I don't even, a phenomenon, because while in Peter Jackson's films, we see it visually, and so there's a sense that there's a physical manifestation here. The way Tolkien writes about the eye, it's never clear if it's a literal eye or if it's more of a psychic power of outward seeing and searching. And Sauron, with that singular eye that's always uh, looking for the movements of enemies and uh, those he can ensnare in his will and so forth, it's an example of an individual who doesn't self-reflect. And that process that you're speaking to of when we look inward toward the imaginal, we look inward to bring the contents of the collective unconscious or the personal unconscious into our awareness, into our consciousness, which is the great work that we do in um, deep, deep psychotherapy and, and other um, practices of self-examination that are so essential, I think, to being able to show up as individuals in our relationships, in our communities, to be able to do that deep inner work. And with Sauron, we have an individual who doesn't do that, who doesn't ever look inward and only projects outward his sense of uh, his own way of seeing the world, power, greed, dominion over others, which is why the, the fool's errand, as Gandalf thinks of it, of sending the ring into Mordor works because he could not imagine that someone wouldn't think the way he does and if they had the ring in their power they wouldn't claim it for their own and so that inability to look inward and self-reflect and imagine empathetically how another might think or that others might Think of someone else first, whether that's a close friend or family member or their culture uh, that they would want to sacrifice themselves on behalf of. Sauron can't think through any of that. And there's this very powerful moment in that's that's written in the book when Frodo puts the ring on in the cracks of doom on Mount Doom. And it's that moment when he claims the ring for himself, when he's, his goodness at this point has been fully sacrificed uh, on behalf of the larger quest. He claims the ring. And in that moment, Sauron, for the first time, becomes aware. He turns inward and he sees what he's missed at the heart of his kingdom. And he sees his vulnerability and all the things that he couldn't imagine. And in, Tolkien writes it in the book where it's this terribly perilous moment because he knows he's on the brink of destruction. And he finally looks inward to see everything that he hasn't been able to recognize. And that's the moment before that fatal interaction between Frodo and Gollum and the, uh, the great you catastrophe, as Tolkien calls it, when Gollum... Mm -hmm falls into the cracks of doom. And I think that that's so powerful in terms of Sauron's final moments. He has to look inward. And we see this theme over and over again in Tolkien's writing, that evil isn't defeated by goodness. Evil unmakes itself. Hmm. You see that when uh, the orcs fight each other, and whether that's uh, with Merry and Pippin being able to get away from them when they're captured by the Urukai, or um, Sam being able to rescue Frodo from the Tower of Kirith and Ungol because the orcs are fighting against each other, or um, even 
the necessity of Frodo sacrificing his goodness to claim the ring. The quest couldn't be seen through if that hadn't happened. So evil undoes itself, evil unmakes itself. And that's a very powerful difference between thinking, well, good just overcomes evil and this conflict of good and evil, but rather creating the right conditions for that which is evil to unmake itself. And is that not more perfectly symbolized than the ring itself dissolving in the place where it was born. So that's anyway, a little bit on the, uh, the eye and self-reflection and Sauron's final fatal moment of actually self-reflecting, even if it's so brief. Yeah. He was forced to do that right before everything literally collapses around him. Yes. Yeah. I love that. So you just mentioned the good versus evil aspect of it, right? And, and Tolkien's works are often held up as sort of the epic good versus evil tale, right? Good overcoming evil. And you've just made a point with great examples of evil unmakes itself, right? In so many examples. So what then is the role of good or those who follow the light or we would say are good people or good characters with good wholesome motivations? What is their role then if evil is to unmake itself ultimately in the end? We're not done yet. If you like this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already. We'll be right back. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I love complexifying that sense that we usually get when we look at Tolkien's story of it's good versus evil, because what often, when you look more deeply, you see over and over again, certain figures working through the temptation to turn toward evil, or at least what leads along the path of evil, which is um, greed desire for power. Um, great examples of this are Boromir, when he undergoes his struggle in relation to the ring, how different that is from his brother Faramir, who says, even if I found this thing by the highway, I would not pick it up. Um, Which is, Faramir's a little bit different in the books than in the films. For those who haven't read the books, he's a lot more, uh, yeah, yeah, Beckett just quoted the line from the books there, so Faramir very much is repulsive of the ring. So there you go. Yes. Very different. Sorry, yeah. not to interrupt you. But. No, no, I, that's a good point to bring up. And um, it's one area where I feel a bit of a, a challenge in relation to the <laughs> film depiction because Faramir mm -hmm. is such a beautiful character and a foil to Boromir. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the film, they chose to depict them in a much more similar vein and then ultimately making a different choice. Um, Faramir in The Return of the King in the film, I think is perfect expression of Faramir, but they, they changed him somewhat in the two towers. Yep. Um, but nonetheless, you see, and the ring is the perfect uh, temptation to draw forward this struggle in each person. It's not that you have the side of good and they're just good all the time. Every single one of them undergoes a test of some kind. Gandalf knows he will fail. That's why he won't even touch the ring. And we see a foil to him through Saruman, who never even is able to touch the ring or see it. And yet the very temptation of it. The lust of it, yeah. Exactly, corrupts him. Um, Galadriel too, how close she comes. And so is it the ring is corrupting force? Yes, you could say that, but it has to have something to corrupt. And so you do start to see the line between good and evil does run through every character's heart. And it's their choices in relation to that that defines who they are. Um, and so I think what the role of good in the story is, is not so much there are good characters and bad characters. There's archetypal goodness and there's archetypal evil. And 
every character has to define themselves in participation with those principles. And every single one of them comes out somewhat differently in relationship to it. Um, there are the more extreme examples. Gollum is probably the most wonderful, mm. where his very identity splits into two different figures, one of whom is fully corrupted and one of whom isn't fully corrupted, but has that potential that that became Smeagol, became Gollum, because that potential was within him. Um, and what a powerful orientation to our relationship to the good and to that potential towards evil when we think of it that way. It's not, the ring is just what pulls it forward. And we can think in our own lives what that ring might be that would pull it forward, usually from a desire to do good. Um, and mm -hmm. so it, it always does become much more complex when we really engage with that uh, looking at one character at a time and how they each make choices and that that's their relationship to goodness. But I wouldn't say any single one of the characters is good in and of themselves. They have a participatory relationship with the good and the sense that Plato meant when he talked about the good, the true, and the beautiful in, in an archetypal mm -hmm. sense. So it suddenly becomes a little less stark than at first we think. Yeah, absolutely. And that idea of these characters, they have they have that temptation, they have that potential to be corrupted, and yet they they have to make a series of choices. And it's not just one choice, but it's it's multiple choices all throughout. You know how many times did Frodo think about using the ring before or even Sam uh before they were able to even get all the way to Mount Doom? Um and so I think there's there's something that really resonates with, you know, the human experience of what are my choices today, right? None of us are, are good or evil all the time in every single moment, right? But we, we do make choices that take us, you know, closer, closer to, uh, to Mordor or closer to the Blessed Realm, I guess, if we were to um, allegoricalize it that way. And I think I just made up a word. So, <laughs> well, in, in your book, uh, you mentioned in the epilogue that uh, when you finished reading The Lord of the Rings for the first time, it was a deeply moving experience for you, so much so uh, that you said you had tears streaming down your eyes. Um, and by the way, you're not the only one uh, in this interview right now who has had that experience with The Lord of the Rings. Um, but you wrote, I'm going to quote from your book here. You wrote, quote, from that moment, I have been trying to understand why I was so deeply affected by those words penned by J.R.R. Tolkien. So my question for you is, what answers have you discovered so far? Why do Tolkien stories, why do Tolkien stories touch so many people in such a deep way? Hmm. What is so human in terms of what we struggle with as individuals in our day-to-day -day lives, uh, our relationships, uh, themes such as friendship, fellowship, romance, um, a sense that there's something greater that we're striving for to, whether that's to protect or make beautiful or bring meaning or purpose to. And, and then these very deep mythic archetypal themes, spiritual themes even, that resonate in a very profound way that you could almost say speak to us at a soul level. And that has become increasingly rare in modernity. Tolkien is an anachronism because he was a medievalist who all his great loves were pre-Chaucerian literature, for example, Beowulf, uh, the uh, the different legends of, for example, the Arthurian legends and um, these old English poems and the Eddas and, and so forth. And yet he's very much a product of the 20th century. He's very much a man of mm -hmm. his time, um, in large part because he's fighting against that tide 
And he published The Lord of the Rings in the mid-1950s when a book on elves and hobbits and dwarves and um, walking, talking trees and this whole uh, fantastical domain was hugely unpopular and completely out of vogue with the literary elite, which is why it was so dismissed by said literary elite when it came out. But because of that, because it was such a unique work in that moment, it spoke to all that was missing in that time. And he used language that had really been excised from the vocabulary, at least since World War I, where he hearkened back on these profound qualities such as nobility, dignity, honor. These are words that we would associate with uh, medieval knighthood, not with uh, modern 20th century political, psychological uh, ways of interacting. And he brought all of that up from the past in a way that it really was reborn. And something that he, he was part of this wonderful fellowship called the TCBS, the Tea Club Barovian Society. It was a mm-hmm. schoolboy fellowship. And um, in the end, it was four very close friends. Um, one of them, a Jeffrey Bache Smith, called them the Immortal Four. And they came together in a, a crisis summit, as they called it. This was in London in 1914, I believe. And they wanted to discuss many different things along these lines of what was missing in the time and these deep themes of friendship and morality and nobility. And um, they felt it was their task, whether as individuals or as a group, to bring a new light forward in the world, or as they said, to rekindle an old light. And this was the task that these four young men set themselves. And then World War I intervened, and they all enlisted. And Tolkien, because of his uh, skill with language, was a signalman. So he was in charge of drawing maps and communicating through the radio or even carrier pigeons. Um, but two of these young men, Rob Gilson and Jeffrey Bache Smith, both died in the Battle of the Somme in 1916. Um, Rob Gilson on the very first day of the Somme Offensive, um, one of the most devastating five-month battle, um, right. just kind of the horror of the trenches. And before the second of them, Smith, died, he sent a letter to Tolkien where he had an intimation of his own impending death. And he said um, in this letter to, may you say the things I have tried to say long after I am not here to say them, if such be my lot. And I think that when Tolkien received that letter and then Smith indeed died, that he felt he was charged with carrying that task forward for all of them. And not just for the four members of the TCBS, which was his first fellowship, but for the whole generation who died in the mud in World War I. And that it was his task to rekindle an old light in the world. I think that was the impetus for him to bring an entire mythology into being, beginning first with his early books of the Book of Lost Tales that he was writing in tandem with the war, um, out through the many poems that have become all the works of the Silmarillion and then The Hobbit, and then finally his magnum opus, The Lord of the Rings. I think he felt he was doing it not just for himself, but for all of those whose voices were lost at that time. Um, and I think it's not insignificant that he was writing so much of The Lord of the Rings during the Second World War, when, which his sons were fighting in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that deep emotional connection that so many of us have in relation to The Lord of the Rings, I think comes from that place. It's not just Tolkien's voice. It's the voice of of a lost generation. It's uh, 
the voice of all the deep myths and that enchanted perspective on the world itself that also was cut down through modernity. Um, that same, even though it, it may seem small or arbitrary, it's that same part of our language that says it's just imaginary. It's only a dream. You just made it up. It's that, that's the same impetus. And he brought all of that and put it in a story that uh, came through him. And when we read it or when we encounter it in, in different forms, through film, through music, even through um, the visual arts, all of which Tolkien wanted. He has this wonderful letter where he says he hoped other minds and hands would take the stories forward and continue to create with them. Um, I think that's what we're feeling and that it's so much more than one individual. Um, it is an entire world and we have a deep emotional connection to that because that's the very ground that it was birthed from. Wow, that's a, that's a beautiful and illuminating thought. Um, mm. You know, as you, as you share that story of his friend's final words to him before he died, the, the image, speaking about images, but the image that came to my mind was of Gladrail giving the, the file of light to Frodo right mm. before maybe a light to you in dark places um and it's that particular file of light that that leads sam to make the connection of this is one great big tale you know you go from the silmarils to the light uh in the file and then the ring and it's it's do the great tales never end and and you know frodo says i suppose not um but that that's the image that comes to mind of his friend passing the torch to tolkien and saying carry our words forward and and carry this light forward i think that's beautiful absolutely well becca thank you for joining us today where can listeners find out more about you and your work they can find out more about me primarily through my website it's just my name beccatarnas.com um, i have a lot of uh, writing and videos and links to classes and events up there um, my work primarily now is, is housed, I'm a full-time professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies, um, which is based in San Francisco, but I teach online in the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program. Um, so if anyone's interested in studying um, archetypes and uh, Tolkien and Jung's Red Book and many other such themes um, at a graduate level, master's and PhD, that's, that's where my work is primarily unfolding now. All right, fabulous. And we'll put a link to your website in the show notes for this episode. Becca, thank, thank you for wandering Middle Earth with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was really such a, an absolute joy to be here. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Lore of the Rings Podcast. For feedback on the show, please email me using the link in the show notes. Until next Thursday, remember, not all those who wander are lost.